Every six weeks to eight weeks, new teams of YWAM missionaries that come from all over the world. And they're from seniors down to little family members. YWAM is the largest um, missions organization in the world. And everybody in YWAM is self-supporting. That's huge. It's amazing. And so what they do is they take the new people as they come in, train them in the methodologies and the ministries of YWAM, and prepare them spiritually for what they're about to do with their lives. Before they're done with that training, they, they take them, because they've established a base in the Dominican Republic, they take them from Texas into the Dominican Republic and minister there and get them hands-on with third world country ministry. And then uh, as they bring those people back to the States, then they disperse them to wherever they go. So when they left here, they uh, had no specific supporting church, no one that handled their finances, that sort of thing. And we've just, uh, in the last 30 days, have agreed with them to become that church for them. They've been handling their finances and their support in another way. And uh, because they're part-time with YWAM now and part-time with other ministries in the Dominican Republic, which now, of course, bleeds over into Haiti, uh, I want to share with you some PowerPoints they sent us, some pictures, um, and then share with you a letter to give you a feel for what they're doing. Okay? Can we do that? So I'm just going to sit here while we do this. Is that all right? Does that work? Dear friends, we've returned from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic and wanted to share some of our experiences with you. Prior to leaving, we had one person say to us, they already have plenty of help there. But what we found told a very different story. While there are many wonderful organizations lending aid along with our military, the UN, the Red Cross, and medical teams from all over the world, the magnitude of this is just too severe. And we came across so many who were still in very dire straits and had received little or no aid. Michelle and I had purchased many medical supplies in Texas, which we brought with us, and we then spent an entire day in the Dominican Republic obtaining more items that we had been told were in great need. While we did have to purchase many items there, we were also overwhelmed with donations and discounts. One Haitian man that was part of our team is a teacher in the Dominican Republic, and he gathered an incredible amount of supplies from school children in many different classes. By the time we were ready to leave, we had the entire half, back half of the bus filled with medical supplies, water, milk, food, clothing, and more. It was very humbling to experience poor people giving what they could to help those suffering and left with nothing. We left Aguas Negras near Puerto Plata on the north coast of the Dominican Republic around 11 p.m. for a 10-plus hour drive and arrived in Jumani, which is about 30 miles from Port-au-Prince on the, on the border, the following morning. This was 10 days after the earthquake, and people were still arriving in the back of trucks by ambulance, by helicopter, or private vehicles to receive care for major injuries for the first time. We found a huge need for all of the items we had brought, as well as for the comfort and care of our, that our team provided. As the two small clinic-type hospitals were and are completely overwhelmed, people are treated, then released, with no shelter, food, or anything else. We camped in the bus, parked in the Dominican Republic military base, with many other relief workers. When traveling into Port-au-Prince these days, uh, the days start very early with a full helping of inoculations given by a medical team from Israel. We then travel in the back of a pickup as part of a convoy of trucks, vans, and buses into Port-au-Prince with the Dominican civil defense personnel as leaders. 
We realize that you all have seen and heard so much from Haiti just as we had, but we still were not prepared for what we experienced. So many children suffering, so many people without limbs, people thirsty and hungry with nothing but a tarp, a sheet, or some rags on the bare dirt to call home. Our Dominican friend Karen went to an orphanage 14 days after the quake that had been damaged where she found 150 children outside that were famished and so in need of the water, food, and medical supplies she had with her and she was brought to tears, something we all experienced many times as she helped them. It's also hard to describe the feeling and overwhelming smell of being just a few feet from slabs of concrete and rubble that were once a home or business, knowing that many lay buried beneath. Sadly, the rains will come soon, leading to even more suffering, disease, and infections. We feel that the best thing we were able to do while there was to team up with our two incredible friends, Sandra and Karen. These two very similar women that live in different areas have never met. They both have joyful and infectious hearts for God that make people say, I want what they have. They have amazing hearts to love, serve, and give to others, and they both have incredible stamina combined with the logistical ability to make things happen, doing so so much for so many. Sandra and her team in Aguas Negras led the combination church school care center with now 200-plus children that we have helped build and that our team, many of you, in fact, helped to financially support as well as medical center, house, and, and rebuilding that whole uh, facility and many developing many great micro-enterprises that help provide an income for many in the community. Sandra also co-pastors the church. Karen runs a similar school and care center for approximately 150 very poor Dominican and Haitian children. Michelle and I always say we want to be like them when we grow up. We knew that getting the two of them together would create a force to be reckoned with for the benefit of many people in Haiti, and it happened. Karen has been serving her neighbors in Haiti for over five years and has just returned from her fourth trip to Port-au-Prince since the earthquake. And Sandra is now back there at this writing after her trip with us. These are about 11-hour trips in each direction and difficult in many ways. She was able to get more aid to the children Karen found at the orphanage mentioned above and to many others with Karen's help. Karen also has been working with and approved by UNICEF and has taken in 13 children at her school-slash-care center with 47 more on the way through UNICEF from the damaged orphanage mentioned above. She and her team will care for the children for approximately six months or until the orphanage in Haiti can be repaired and restaffed. We will continue to work with Sandra, Karen, and her husband Johnny and others to provide funding, people, and resources to ease the suffering And these friends will continue to serve for the long haul, well after Haiti is out of the news spotlight and when help is harder to find. In addition to the supplies and fuel for transport, we used a portion of our funds, a combination of our personal finances as well as funds donated from some of you, to help fund this second trip for Sandra and their team, along with supplies, many more supplies, and providing some funding to help care and care for the children she has and and is in the process of receiving. When the medical supplies, food and water we were able to while the medical supplies, food and water we were able to transport get into the hands of those in need helped provide relief for many with the physical injuries and needs, we also found so many with very heavy hearts due to all they have endured. Many long to have someone to pray with, to be held, and to just feel that someone cares. 
Our hope is to continue to be able to help with the funding, people, and resources necessary to aid our friends that we so believe in and return to Haiti for a longer period as finances permit. We are so thankful to all of you that continue to help us in this work with finances and through prayer and encouragement. With love, Perry and Michelle. So you saw Perry go by in there somewhere, the orange shirt holding a little Haitian girl uh, who had lost her family. And Michelle's in lots of these pictures. And she's a real go-getter, and, and uh, I'm just very proud of them. Thank God for them. <clears throat> you know, Haiti can come and go in the news and feel very distant, but um, I'm just proud to know that we have a real Big Bear family that's on scene helping. There's Karen. And... Uh, also, know that Tony um, Warren, who is Donna Thiessen's, that's a great ending right there, isn't it? Oh, Hallelujah. <laughs> Seeking God together, even in the middle of their own need. Prayer makes a difference, doesn't it? Uh, Tony, I was mentioning Tony Warren, who is uh, Donna Thiessen's nephew, is also there with YWAM in and out of the country's home right now, but he... Uh, has been down there videotaping and, and documenting what's been going on so that it can be shared around the world. And you can find that at ywamhaiti.org if you want to see some of the videos. I don't know the full story. I just know that they're in trouble. <laughs> And that, uh, you know, there are some lawyers working on it. And it sounds like a, a pretty simple mistake was made on paperwork. And uh, they'll probably come out okay. I doubt they want to keep them. They've got enough things to do down there. But I'm sure it'll work out. God's on the throne. Amen. So I use this. If you, uh, we haven't put them on our website yet. We may do that, but... If you'd like to help Perry and Michelle, you can do that by, you know, putting Haiti on a check, dropping it here. We've been supporting or uh, encouraging support to Haiti through Samaritan's Purse on the website, and uh, we we'll certainly still endorse them. But having people on the ground that are firsthand and, and are actually invested themselves is uh, is a great way to be connected. So I would recommend that uh, now that we're going to become their agency, if you will, or their support team here. Um, Certainly, we want to get behind them. Amen? Amen. I'm ringing again. How do I deal with that? Move a different place. I'm going to stand still and let them work it out. Okay. You know, I realize that I've got about 52 opportunities or less than that every year to help shape your thinking. So this morning, I want to try and do that. I've been wrestling with this uh, a lot this morning. Uh, and so I, I'm just going to give you what I got. Is that all right? Uh, it's not about me. It really isn't about me, but it is an unusual moment. And I, you see, I've, I've come to realize that I don't have any guarantee of tomorrow. Do you? And so I need to do as much good as I can right now with you in this moment. Allow God to use me to help shape the way we think, shape our spirit man, shape our character, shape the way we are in Christ's likeness and the way we think. And when I look at slides like this, uh, I hope you don't think me crass and you won't by the time I get done, but 
humanitarian efforts and, and altruistic actions if they don't include ministering to the spiritual depravity of men, women, and children, only keeps people alive for another day before they go to hell. Okay, is that pretty clear? I was concerned it might be too long of a sentence. We helped launch in Big Bear a hundred years ago a little ministry called Bread of Life. And it was inspired to us through YWAM, in fact, and that was that we would go to the local grocery stores and take all the outdated food that they would give us, writing them a tax-deductible receipt for the donation, and then we would spread, the, spread that into the community. There were days we had to go with three pickup trucks and pick up cases and cases of milk and yogurt, cheese and bread and all kinds of food products, and it went on practically every day for years. It always kind of touched me wrong when we would be giving out this bread and cheese and milk that as I was looking at some of the faces we were helping, I was realizing that this is just going to sustain them for another day before they go to hell if we don't tell them about the love of Jesus. It's called bread of life. That's what the ministry was. And, and kind of jokingly, I used to be in some of the training events with people who were going to distribute food. And I'd say, when you go to hand somebody a loaf of bread, hold it out long ways, and when they get a hold of the other end, don't let go of your end. Kind of a little tug of war on that loaf of bread. Surprise them. Stop them in their tracks and say, wait, before I give you this to feed you for a day, let me tell you why I'm doing this. And that's because of the love of Jesus. Is that you need Christ. You don't just need bread. You need bread. And that's your motivation for being here. But while you're here, let me tell you about Jesus. And I look at this, and this is wide-scale stuff. This is huge stuff. And there are supplies and teams running into Haiti from all over the world, literally all over the world, agencies and huge government functions, and even some of the governments are arguing about who's got the deal first, you know, who's going to be in charge. My thinking goes along with Oswald J. Smith, who said this, the supreme task of the church is the evangelization of the world. We've been accused of being myopic, but we really should be myopic. We should be focused on what our goal is, what our task is, And the supreme task of the church is the evangelization of the world. If you look at that phrase and break it down to these three words, supreme, the supreme task of the church, supreme, Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff will be added to you. Our exhortation from Christ the Lord, seek first, put it supreme. The very first thing, the very top thing, the most important thing should be seeking the kingdom of God. And I've been reading a little on the kingdom of God and very simply put, it means this, that it is the rule and the reign of God as sovereign. It's not a place necessarily. In the parable where Jesus said the man went left where he was and went off to receive a kingdom and then came back and his subjects didn't want to be under him. You remember this parable? See, what happened is the man was already in where he lived. He was in his geographic confine, but he went somewhere else to receive a kingdom. We know this is also a parable that relates to Jesus himself. He came here after his death, burial, and resurrection. He's gone to be with the Father to receive a kingdom. What that means is he was receiving the authority to rule and to reign supremely over the entire universe. All things will come to the feet of Jesus, right? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
And so he has received a kingdom and he is going to return again here. And it'll be up to us, the subjects on the planet, to say yes or no to his sovereignty and to his rule. We may choose to choose to bow before the Lord Jesus ahead of time before that one day when every knee will be forced to bow before him, whether they love him or not. But our supreme task is to seek the expansion of his sovereignty, the rule and reign of Christ wherever we go. So if we're going to go into Haiti or if we're going to go into Los Angeles, if we're going to go into Fonskin, it doesn't matter where we're going. Our role is the supreme task of expanding his influence as the sovereign, as the king of all, wherever we live, whatever we do. We need to get the cart behind the horse in our own lives on this topic. And what I mean by that is that we're often concerned because of the culture we're in. We're often concerned about our own needs. We're often concerned about our own stuff. Uh, we're concerned about our, our possessions and our material items and our well-being. But that's the, that's the cart that's supposed to be behind the horse, right? Seeking first his kingdom, his sovereignty, his rule and his reign. And the other gets added on. Let's not get our cart in front of the horse. Another word in the same sentence, church, the supreme task of the church. The church is not a building. The church is people. The church is you and I. We are the body of Christ. That is the church. He's the head. We're the body. doesn't matter where we dwell. It does not behoove us to take a group of people inside of a congregation or fellowship and say, yours is the mission society yours is the missionary responsibility yours is you're the evangelist you go tell people about jesus we'll just be the other part of the church see when jesus when we say the supreme task of the church we're saying the supreme task of every christian there's a good missionary motto it says every christian a missionary every christian a missionary it's not just a small part of an organization it's the entire body Oswald J. Smith, the man I quoted before, also said this, If God wills the evangelization of the world, and you refuse to support missions, then you are opposed to the will of God. Ooh. Now this guy doesn't cut any slack, does he? <laughs> He's the founder of the People's Church in Toronto. And from the founding of that church, there collective giving to missions around the world was always larger than their own budget every year year after year after year until finally i think the church do you remember the numbers rob was the the operation of the church was like a hundred thousand dollars but they were giving millions to missions their sunday schools in one year gave uh three hundred and eleven thousand dollars to missions (laughs) But it's not just about money. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about priorities. <clears throat> if God wills the evangelization of the world and I refuse to support missions, whether financially or going or sending, then I am opposed to the will of God. John Wesley said it this way, untold millions still untold. You have one business on earth, and that is to save souls. And finally, in this sentence, the supreme task of the church is the evangelization of the world. Here's the word world. John 3.16 comes to mind. God so loved the world. 
not just one geography or one country or one type. Revelation says that in the in the in that moment where we gather around the throne, there'll be every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation represented. There's going to be some Haitians there. Surprisingly, there's going to be some Americans there, some North Americans. But there's going to be every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation represented at the throne. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The evangelist Mark writes in his gospel, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. (laughs) Paul the Apostle, as he's writing to 1 Timothy, says, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am chief. Luke writes in his gospel, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to the world for a specific task, and that was to bring salvation and to find the lost. Now I want to share a story with you for the next few minutes. This is the risk that I take, but this story demonstrates how God can shape our view of the world and propel us to live out those changes in our hearts and minds more effectively and with a more spiritual maturity and a more spiritual response, a mature response to His word and to His heart. I'll preface it with this paragraph and I'm going to, I was going to try and put some pictures up, but I want you to see the pictures in your own mind this morning. And I want the story to touch our hearts, touch our spirit, man. And I'm counting on that happening. If you make $50,000 a year, that puts you in the top 1% of the world's population in earning power. You might say, no way, I don't make that kind of money. I'm only making 20000 a year. 20000 a year puts you in the top 5% of the world. If you say, well, things aren't really even that good. I'm, I'm on welfare in this country, and I get about $500 a month. If that's your lot in life today here in the United States, then you're in the top 15% of the world's earners, even in America, on welfare, making $500 a month. Last year, <clears throat> Haitians, on average, before the earthquake, made about $700 per year which is $2 and a few cents every day in order to feed their families. This story is from Randall Frame. Randall Frame is uh, probably not well known by you or me. He is uh, the acquisitions editor at Judson Press in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. It's the publishing arm of the American Baptist Churches. He's been the director of communications at Eastern Seminary and the associate news editor at Christianity Today magazine in Chicago. He's got all kinds of published works. He's written eight books. And uh, he wrote this essay. It's called Fixing Haiti. I shake my head upon thinking about how I ended up on this muddy road, if one could even call it a road, on the outskirts of Haiti's capital city in the dark of night. The moon, though not quite full, is more than enough to light my path. But when it hides behind the clouds, I have no choice but to stop. For only a few scattered stars and a handful of campfires that dot the hillsides around Port-au-Prince prevent total darkness. What a difference a week makes. 
Seven days previously, I'd been sitting in the comfort of the living room of my four-bedroom home in suburban Pittsburgh, anticipating what promised to be an interesting trip. My first to a country distinguished mainly by its status as the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. I was part of a team of journalists and business leaders invited by a charitable organization to witness Haiti's poverty, injustice, lawlessness, and some would say its hopelessness from up close. Friends who had been to the so-called third world had warned me that I would be changed, perhaps even disoriented, unable to fend off the emotional and psychological effects of culture shock. I humored them, outwardly acknowledging the accuracy of their predictions. But inwardly I shook my head. I was, after all, a reporter, a professional, who, while not denying his humanity, had been trained to maintain his distance, his objectivity. The truth is that as I examined the itinerary, my biggest concern was whether the return flight would get me home in time to watch my beloved Pittsburgh Steelers play on Sunday night. For the first four days, at least, my assessment of how my emotions would handle Haiti proved on target. This isn't to say the experience was easy. It was not. I won't soon forget the images of skinny dogs and even skinnier people ravaging the same garbage heaps, looking for potentially edible scraps. Scenes of naked children who lived in rudimentary tin shacks, whose toys were limited to rocks and whose backyards consisted of mud two inches deep, sometimes more after a heavy rain. Pictures of long lines of people waiting patiently for nothing more than a bowl of rice and beans and a cup of clean water. Elderly-looking men and women curled up along the roadside, sleeping on the hard ground, bony arms their only pillow. Medical clinics that resembled American hospitals of a century or more ago, and crying children with nobody running to meet them. But this was not a time for emotion. <clears throat> this was a time for problem-solving. As a typically pragmatic American, my whole orientation toward what I was witnessing and learning was geared toward how to fix it. And I was not alone. Each night when our delegation returned to the hotel to process the day's events, the discussion quickly turned to fixing Haiti. To do so would not be easy, we acknowledged. Education seemed a logical place to start. After all, how can a country get anywhere if nearly half its adult population can neither read nor write? But we can't expect children or adults to learn on empty stomachs. And no one could afford the luxury of going to school if finding enough food to make it through the day is virtually a full-time job. So how can we fix this food problem? Arable land is scarce as a result of deforestation and soil erosion. Some people in the countryside are able to grow fruits, vegetables, and grains but the road system is so obsolete that by the time they get their goods to market, they're spoiled. Maybe building infrastructure is the answer. And then again, what would it matter if people could successfully transport their products if no one has any money to buy them? And nobody has any money because there are no jobs. We'd visited one charitable organization whose goal was to keep Haitian teenagers out of trouble by teaching them carpentry. 
But our host acknowledged that his ministry's main purpose was to give these young people some small measure of self-respect. Few, if any of them, would ever be able to find a work, period, let alone as carpenters. Building Haiti's economy, maybe that was the place to start. But it seemed no matter where we started, we kept returning to keeping people alive and healthy. And they can't grow their own food or raise chickens or become dairy farmers when they have no land and no possibility of ever owning land, most of which is possessed by a relative handful of the country's elite who by Haiti's standards are quite wealthy. All of this is not even to mention political and justice systems rife with bias and corruption and a health care system that is inaccessible to the overwhelming majority. Undeterred, our little group of entrepreneurial Americans in the comfort of our hotel meeting room went to work each night. As far as we were concerned, there was no problem that could not be solved, though it would take time. Some cited models of project that had worked in other parts of the developing world to bring, for example, both clean water and jobs to small communities. Others cited advances in biotechnology that would enable people to grow diverse crops on relatively small plots of land. We discussed also the role the United States government could play in improving conditions in Haiti. As we unveiled our plans and proposals, I made it a point to observe our 40-ish looking guide, Madame Pierre. I was a bit disappointed at her lack of enthusiasm. Though she nodded in apparent affirmation at our grasp of the situation, her silence suggested she was less than excited with our developing vision. That didn't stop us from pressing on. Our wide-ranging perspectives and ideas for fixing Haiti were united by a common philosophy, one that emphasized the practical, things that would actually work. We applied an American business mentality to the challenge, placing a premium on such words as efficiency and sustainable. We were not after quick fixes here. No band-aids. We aspired rather to permanent solutions. Though we'd not yet done a single thing, we all came away from these evening gatherings feeling a sense of power and success. Yes, there were problems, but we had answers. Indeed, some of those who gathered in that room each night, myself not included, had access not just to the money, but to the human expertise that, if applied intelligently, would likely make an impact on this troubled nation, even if it could not completely fix it. I went to sleep feeling good about myself and also about the future of Haiti. We had come and we had seen Haiti's problems. Next, we would conquer them. Plans were in place or would be soon. In writing about what I had seen and the solutions that had been devised, I would be doing my part. I had approached my mission objectively and dispassionately. I had proved my friends wrong. I was content, if not proud. And I wondered how the Steelers would fare on Sunday. Then came day five, the day before our scheduled return to the United States. Our delegation visited a place called La Quai Espoir, which is Haitian Creole for House of Hope. Within this simple two-room structure, a group of nuns dedicated their lives each day to the weakest and most vulnerable of all, starving children. Severely malnourished children would be brought to La Quai Espoir, and these nuns would do what they could to nurse them back to health. 
Mostly what they did, however, was to hold the children in their arms, perhaps stroke their hair. A few rocking chairs, rudimentary in design, were scattered around the room. And these faithful women sat and rocked these children day after day, all day long. I surveyed the room, at once intrigued and overwhelmed by the contrast. Over here were these wealthy, influential business persons whose elaborate job descriptions went on for pages. Memos, employee reviews, seminars, meetings with investors, advertising strategies, and on and on and on. And over here, this small group of women, each of whose job description boasted essentially one item, holding babies. One of the nuns, Sister Conchita, approached me carrying a child. She spoke very little English, but as she extended her arms, it was clear she was asking me if I would like to hold the baby. Instinctively, I shook my head, raised my hands in protest. I had come to Haiti as a reporter, and reporters are not supposed to get personally involved. But neither did I want to be rude or impolite. If ever I was going to make an exception to my journalistic principles, this seemed a good time for it. I reached for the child. Her name, Maria, the sister said with broken English and a quiet smile. I took Maria into my arms, gingerly at first. She seemed so fragile. I could practically see the skeleton beneath her skin. Only her eyes seemed to have escaped the circumstances of her young life. Her eyes were deep brown and as shiny as any child's ought to be. She focused them, not on me, but on Sister Conchita. It was clear I was second string. Perhaps my arms were not as soft or comfortable, yet she didn't cry. Maybe she was too weak to protest being held by a stranger. Or perhaps she was just glad to be in anyone's arms. How could I tell? For the next 20 minutes or so, Madame Pierre and one of the English-speaking nuns talked about the history and the needs of House of Hope. I wasn't listening. I was too focused on and too captivated by this child I was holding. I wondered if Maria had brothers or sisters or parents. Had any of the people in her small village ever even heard of the Steelers? The time came for us to leave. I wasn't ready. At first, I'd not wanted to hold this child. Now I found it hard to give her back. As I returned Maria to Sister Conchita's arms, the child, for the first time, turned her eyes to me. Perhaps she was saying, thank you. Maybe, thank you for giving me back to the first string. <clears throat> or maybe, thank you for holding me. How could I know? We visited two other sites in the afternoon. I went along in body only. My mind kept going back to La Espoir. Something about the, that place had jarred me, had upset my mode of thinking. These women were dedicated servants, to be sure. Their motivation, pure as a new day. But their whole approach seemed highly inefficient, impractical, and unproductive. These children had little chance of ever being able to help build the country's infrastructure or to become leaders for political change. These persistent Sisters of Mercies could offer a ray of hope to these children, but little more. Theirs was the ultimate Band-Aid approach. 
They operated out of a total disregard for the big picture. In fact, it seemed to me they focused on the smallest picture possible. If ever there was a lost cause, this was it. Still, I could not escape the overwhelming feeling that these women had acquired something, some understanding, some realization that was unknown to me. And I sensed it was something I wanted, something that I perhaps needed. Their circumstances did not keep these women from smiling. Not happy smiles, for there's nothing happy about seeing starving children every day. Their smiles rather reflected a sense of peace that is lodged in the depths of the soul, a sense of contentment that comes from understanding fully and living out completely one's calling in life. It dawned on me that I, a trained journalist, had been a bit foolish to think that ours was the first delegation ever to visit this troubled land and determine how to fix it. Over the last five days, I'd witnessed firsthand the results of the grand plans of those who'd gone before. Those results were not impressive. I realized that these women I'd come so quickly to admire did not have the luxury of looking at the big picture. And I wondered if they, in their simple, single-minded approach, were doing more to fix Haiti than anyone from our resource-laden delegation could ever do or even hope to do. I wanted to visit them again. I wanted to see Maria. At our nightly debriefing session, Madame Pierre reminded us to be ready to leave the hotel for the airport at 7 in the morning. Then she reviewed the events of the day. As before, she had my attention only when talking about House of Hope. On average, she told us, one in four of the children who arrive at La Quesbois will die because they got there too late. Too much damage to their internal organs. She added, the sisters can usually tell which ones they are. When someone asked how they could tell, Maria, uh, Madame Pierre pointed to the obvious signs of starvation, withering away of the body and an almost total lack of energy, in addition, she said, the skin becomes pale and rigid. The hair takes on a reddish hue and begins to fall out. She might as well have been describing Maria. Madame Pierre looked to me, surely aware of what I was thinking. The child you were holding, she said, seemed like a baby because she's only 16 pounds. She was actually almost three years old. Whatever inkling of journalistic objectivity remained in me evaporated quickly. I left the group and returned to my room alone. I peered through my window in the direction of La Quesbois, unable to shake the image of Maria's eyes meeting mine as I gave her away too soon. Perhaps she was saying thank you, as I'd considered earlier. But perhaps she was saying, could you hold me a little bit more? How could I know? I formed my own personal plan to do my part in fixing Haiti. I estimated La Quespoir no more than two miles from the hotel. It was almost a straight shot, just one turn, well marked by a sign on the main road. We had been strictly warned against venturing out on our own. If something were to happen, it could put at risk similar trips in the future. But this was a chance I needed to take. We're shaping something 
you feel it. God's shaping something in us. Let's allow it. And so, here I am. As I forge my way through the dark silence, the night becomes surreal. Each time the moon emerges from the clouds, I hustle down the road as fast as I can to make up for the dark times when I can barely move at all. At first, in the darkness, I'd slid my feet carefully down the road, but now I just stand still for fear of passing the sign pointing to my destination. I think of all I have seen and heard these last few days, the suffering, the sense of helplessness, the pain of broken dreams, or worse, no dreams at all. I smile sadly as I acknowledge my friends were right after all. I am disoriented, completely off kilter, and broken. I think of my world back home and it seems completely different. But there's brokenness there too. There's brokenness everywhere. Crushed and confused spirits all around. But mostly, I think of Maria, who has somehow become a symbol a focal point, both for all that is wrong with the world and for what I can do about it. I hear footsteps coming up from behind. At first I'm scared, but I assure myself that I'm exactly where I ought to be and where I need to be. I find safety in this assurance. As the footsteps get closer, I speak one of the few native expressions I know. Bonjour. In the darkness, a man returns my greeting and then adds a few words I don't understand. I venture, La que espoir? La que espoir, comes the reply. Perhaps his eyes are more accustomed to the dark, or maybe he knows the stretch of road by heart. He takes my hand, and immune to the darkness, leads me along the path. After about five minutes, we stop. As if right on cue, the moon once again lights the night. The sign appears before me, and my new friend, my ship in the night points toward La Quespoir, visible from here, a hundred yards or so away. And then he proceeds down the road alone. I'm not sure what to think about angels, but he is what I'd imagined them to be. I run as fast as I can to the house of hope. I stand at the door and knock. For the first time it occurs to me that perhaps no one will answer. After dark, who knows what danger a visitor might bring. But soon the door opens, and one of the sisters, recognizing me from earlier in the day, invites me inside. Immediately I look around. It doesn't take long to find Sister Conchita sitting on her rocker as before, holding Maria. It's as if no time has passed. As I approach Sister Conchita, she stands, sensing exactly why I have returned. She says nothing, but offers me the child and also her chair. This time there's no protest, no hesitation. I take my seat. A few of the sisters inquire as to who their late-night visitor might be, but soon the night is silent again, or nearly so. There remains the weak, rhythmic creaking of an aged rocker that, though old and plain, is fully able to accomplish its mission. I have arrived at the place where I want to be. And as I live out what I'd earlier in the day envisioned, I am suddenly and fully aware 
of my weaknesses and my limitations. And aware also of the limitations and shortcomings of humanity, which has somehow failed this child and many others like her. My four-bedroom house, my physical health and strength, the Steelers, all fade meekly into irrelevance. I am utterly powerless to determine whether this child who bears the image of God will live or die this night. But I do have power, complete power, to make certain that if and when her frail body finally yields, she has felt the security and the comfort of someone's loving arms. Tonight, they are my arms. It's the least I can do for her, and also perhaps the most. Her weak but gracious eyes look up to mine and hold their gaze. And in the sacred silence of this moment, there is no other power I crave, no other purpose I desire. (coughs) Randall Frame wrote that in 2004, well before an earthquake. And well after many others had come with their grandiose plans of how to fix Haiti. And we still don't see Haiti fixed. And I'm not saying that it can't be done. I'm just looking for a forming of a worldview that says the kingdom of God coming into Haiti or coming into Big Bear is our primary task. It is the supreme task of the church, the evangelization of the world, the bringing of the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ into where the need is. Haiti's going to come and go in the news. People are going to be on the ground for years. My continuing prayer is this, that God will raise up Christians as leaders. That God will take the Tony Warrens and the uh, Perry and Michelle Ruiz families and lead them to places of leadership so that their working among people of need brings the kingdom of God and his rule to bear on the situation. It doesn't always make sense what the kingdom of God needs to advance. It's not always the UN or complete financing or medical teams. Sometimes it's just the moment of holding people and caring for them or us making sure that someone is there to do that. A biblical worldview reminds us of our priorities and our values. It gives us principles to live by and to live more spiritually mature lives. This afternoon, and I don't, I don't begrudge this, it's just a, a comparison. Uh, some of you are going to immerse yourself in, not in communion, but in chili and football and hot dogs. And you're going to have a, a great time. And you're going to see commercials that cost $2 million for 30 seconds. Some of them will be powerfully wonderful and bear a great message, and others will be uh, nothing more than a little cannon fodder. But as we're watching us lavish this upon ourselves, Maria should come to mind a little bit and say, I need to think differently. I need to live differently. It's not about the four-bedroom house and the Steelers. It's about the kingdom of God. And there are people, I was truly impressed with the people in the Dominican Republic who have nothing 
yet gave everything they could so that the Ruiz family could take it with them to people who had nothing. Poor, giving to the poor. I think you find this in the scriptures. Paul talks about, out of your great need, you gave so that I could take it to those who were in need. This is a biblical principle. This is living by value. This is living by priority. This is lifting up those values that says others before self. Selflessness, giving up in order to receive. Stewardship of my life and my resources is a call from God. How am I supposed to be managing what God has placed in my hands? Another great mission motto, and I'll probably get a little bit wrong, but it it says that it's not about how much of, you know, how I give my 10% tithe and how I manage the other 90%. It's how I give it all to the kingdom of God and understand I'm just a steward of those resources he's put in my hand. Uh, an indicting passage from James chapter 5, and, and I'll, I'll bring this as the final exhortation to us this morning. I'm not sure everybody sees this passage the way I do, but I want to share with you how I see it. James chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. You know, there are those that say James shouldn't be included in the Bible. <laughs> so literally, I mean, some of the great guys of time, I think maybe Martin Luther was one of them, said James should not be included in the canon of Scripture. And it's for things like this that James is in trouble. <laughs> He was pretty pointed. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. For you have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. That may seem like a hard passage even to understand what it's saying. Here's how I see it. James is warning those of us who live in the top 15% of the world's earning ability, even if we're on welfare in this nation. He's saying, be careful that you're not gathering up and sticking it in your pockets and living off the fat of the land while others are out mowing your fields. Others are out, the Ruizes are out. You know, the uh, uh, as it was, we talked about pa- Pastor Rob and Shannon and their families, they were in Guatemala. They were totally dependent on people like us to send their support each month. We talked about this this week. And that there were months where it did not come. And so on the first, when everything came on that first of the month, and they looked at it, they go, there isn't enough. We know right now there isn't enough to make it through the month. He would be categorized in that moment, and James is the guy that doesn't cry out against you. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't say anything about you. But he is your worker in the field. And you're holding his wages back from him. And God says, those wages are crying out and coming to my ears and saying, this is not right. That's how I see this passage. 
So I exhort us to live frugally, practically, sensibly, as good stewards, and that we allow stories like Maria's to shape our worldview and say, look, what's really important here? You can't take it with you. And I've joked lots of times, even in funerals and in memorial services, I've said this, that you never see a U-Haul behind the hearse. You don't take it with you. I was telling Tom the other day, you know, this guy's leaning over John D. Rockefeller's grave. One guy says to the other, so how much did he leave? The other guy said, hey, stupid, he left it all. You don't take it with you. It's only valuable if you use it now and put it to work for the kingdom of God. And if the supreme task of the church is the evangelization of the world, that helps narrow our focus on where we live and give and support and pray. Okay? I took a risk this morning that this story would somehow reach down inside, and I saw it on some of your faces. Some of the rest of you were a little more stalwart. But I saw it on your faces that your heart was touched. I know it's a aside from the Word of God. And that's the dangerous place when you start getting anything else but the Word in the pulpit. I know that. I recognize it. I took the risk that Maria's story, Randall Frame's story, would reach inside, touch, and in that moment create a change point that happened in him. You know, through him we saw it occur. Say, Lord, let it occur in me. I'm looking for the day when cell groups here in the congregation say together, hey, what do you say we go as a team and see so-and-so, wherever they're at? How about we go call the Ruizes? Maybe they're going into the Dominican Republic this week. We'll see if we can plan to go with them, or this month, or six months from now. That a whole team or groups from cells would say, let's go. Let's go together. Rather than have the missionary try and get off the field and come here and give us a report, why not let's send a delegation to them and let our delegation bring back the report? And let each one of the delegation see the rubble, smell the smells, touch the lives, hold the Marias, and come back changed forever. I've been through it. We call it being a ruined Christian. We want to ruin as many Christians as we can. I remember when the revelation hit me when I was in, in Europe. <clears throat> I thought, I just woke up one day and went, wow, Jesus is an American. I mean, I thought I knew that mentally. But I finally realized it was true. And when I landed back in, in America, and I landed on some runways over there, that fortunately we were flying, but a couple of the runways I looked out the window and thought, we're not going to make it. I mean, this, this plane hits those holes with these wheels, we're in trouble. Uh, but we made it. You get home and you do kind of get down and kiss the ground and thank God that you live here. But you realize from that point on, Jesus is not American and he's not come to save the United States. He came to save sinners came to save the lost, seeking to save wherever they're at. And when they were finally gathered around the throne, every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation will be there. It's going to be glorious. You plan on being there? Me too. Father, thank you for this morning. Holy Spirit, use it. Honor the Lord Jesus with it. Touch our hearts. Shape us. Bring us to a greater level of spiritual maturity and understanding. Lord, I pray that you would not allow this to remain emotional or emotionalism, but that you will drive it deep into our hearts as a change point. That you will minister to us in our spirit, man, 
a balance of priorities. That you will strike deep into us the values of your word, the practices of your life in us. Help us, we pray, with your grace, because we cannot do this on our own. We are dependent upon you. And as I like to say, Father, gladly dependent upon you. We offer this day to you in Jesus' name. Speak to us freely. Amen. Amen. Amen.